Our God and Father, we thank you for this opportunity that is ours this morning uh, to be able to worship you. We're grateful to you for the songs we have sung which have reminded us of how holy you are. And Father, I was struck this morning as the scripture was read that there was something in the reading that startled us all, that the scripture would actually address an issue which for most of us, we would be very adverse to even talking about. And so Lord, we bow in your presence as those who have been made holy through Christ, recognizing again that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And so we pray that today the Holy Spirit will help us to wrestle with a passage in your word that is difficult, hard to grasp, easy to misunderstand, not because it isn't clear, but because when we read it, our emotions get wrapped up very readily in what is said. So please grant us your grace and help us now, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. And let's take our Bibles and turn to the passage that was read for us, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Last Sunday, we looked at chapters 3 and 4, and we talked about um, church leaders and the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we focused on the truths that um, chapter 3 and 4 bring out to us. And we didn't deal with every verse, but we, we kind of skimmed over the top and picked out some of the highlights that Paul uh, shares with the Corinthians and with us. We discovered that ministers, church leaders, are servants of the Lord Jesus. They're also stewards who have been entrusted with the gospel. That it is absolutely necessary that church leaders would live their lives in light of the cross. And that they would encourage others to do the same. To live by the way of the cross. Laboring with all that they have to encourage God's people, the church, to live in the way of the cross of the Lord Jesus. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 21, which is a preface right into chapter 5, uh, Paul actually reveals to us in verse 21 uh, the measures that he was um, willing to go, the extent to which he was willing to go, um, to encourage people, uh, to challenge people, to walk in the way of the Lord. He speaks here as, as someone who has a whip. And not that he wants to use that whip, but it's, it's almost as though he's saying uh, severe discipline is sometimes needed in the church of the living God in order that we, we might live in the way of the cross. So that brings us to chapter 5. And there are two things that I want to say as we, just before we get into chapter 5. First of all, I want to say something to you this morning. Um, well, we just opened our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5. And we read 1 Corinthians 5 later, and when we, earlier. And when we did, we did that, we did something very unique. Something very special, actually. So if your Bible is open right now to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it should be. You did bring your Bibles, right? Remember I said I'm going to go at you if you don't bring your Bibles. We really need to see what the text says. But, but we're looking at a text in God's Word, a passage, a letter. 
chapter in a letter, and it's from an apostle. And you might think, okay, so we do that every Sunday. Yeah, we do. But do you realize the import of it? We open up our Bible and we turn to a writing, a letter from an apostle of Jesus Christ. What I want to talk about, first of all, just, just as preface, is apostolic authority. Okay? The apostles of Jesus have authority in the church. Now, now from chapters 1 to 4, the apostle Paul deals, he, he's trying to correct the Corinthians about their divisions, their schisms. But in chapters 1 through 4, he's also trying to reconnect with the church, a church that no longer recognizes his authority. He's an apostle of Jesus. And they just kind of push Paul aside as though we don't care what Paul says, we're going to do our own things. The wisdom of the world was more important to them than the wisdom that would come from an apostle of Jesus Christ. They were trying to break free of the authority of an apostle. You see, this is a problem today because there are churches that recognize the authority of Jesus, but they refuse to recognize the authority of the apostles. They teach that the apostles and Jesus are in contradiction with each other. But that is not our understanding according to God's word. If we look at Ephesians chapter 2, we'll put that up on the slides for us now. Ephesians 2 verses 19 and 20. Can we go to that? Great, thank you. You are fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. That's the church. And we're built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. With Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. The West Highland Statement of Faith reads as follows, if we can put that on the screen, please. We believe that the totality of believers from all times in heaven and on earth form one holy Catholic, meaning universal. We believe in the holy Catholic church, the universal church. All people who believe in Jesus are part of this holy Catholic church and apostolic church, an apostolic church. Does that mean we have apostles who are alive today? No, we don't. There are lots of church, churches that refer to themselves as apostolic churches, and they actually claim they have living apostles today. But most of those churches aren't apostolic in nature. An apostolic church is a church that adheres to the teaching of the apostles. The moment you jettison the authority of the apostles, you no longer have a bona fide church according to God's word. That's why this statement is such an important one. Remember this, that Jesus Christ gave his authority to the apostles. The apostles' authority is the authority of Christ. And it is the apostles that ultimately bring unity to the church because we gather around their teachings and adhere to what they say. If we reject the authority of the apostles of Jesus, we actually destroy the church and we open up a Pandora's box of all kinds of problems that will trouble the church. The second thing we want to point out here as we go into this passage is that there is a call here to holy life. This is the second problem that the Apostle Paul is going to deal with. 
Actually, if you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 2, go back to chapter 1, just flip the page or so back. In his opening words to this church in verse 2, he says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. We are called to live holy lives. And what Paul is doing here, bringing up the issue of holiness now, he's actually following exactly what Moses did because Moses in the law gave us Genesis and Exodus. That was the gathering out of the people of God, the forming of them into into a holy nation. And then he gave us the book of Leviticus, which most, most of us don't want to read because it's filled with all kinds of weird things. But he gives Leviticus after the story of the Exodus because now that they have been called out to be a holy people, Leviticus is all about living a holy life. It's all about God being holy. And, and, and over and over again in, in, in the third book of Moses, he says, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And interestingly, from Leviticus 18 to 21, he begins to to list the various ways in which we are to be holy. And here in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul follows the same pattern. By these teachings on holiness found in the book of Leviticus, Israel uh, was to separate themselves from the practices of Egypt, which lay behind them now, and from the practices of Canaan, the promised land where they were about to enter. Those practices of Canaan would be before them now. And so like in the book of Leviticus, the first aspect that the Apostle Paul deals with is holiness as it pertains to sexuality. Chapters 5 through 7. And here we're going to see again that the church in Corinth was compromising with the world. So we have here, first of all in verse 1, a problem needing discipline is actually reported to the Apostle Paul. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among, among you. Now, we don't know exactly how Paul knew. It probably came through members of Chloe's household. He talks about them in chapter 1 that they brought a report to the Apostle Paul. But it's, it's clear in these verses that this was known throughout, throughout the church. It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you, implying you know. You know this is true. Now the word that the Apostle Paul uses here is the word porneia, translated sexual immorality, and it really refers to all kinds of sexual activity outside of the, of the marriage bond. And what he reports here is not just that there's sexual immorality in the church, but he says, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans, a man has his father's wife. So we have here then an immoral church member. This is a man who professes faith in Jesus, and he's having sex with his father's wife. Now this is not incest per se, but it's like it because this is now his stepmother, not his real mother, but his stepmother. Interestingly, in Leviticus 18, this sin is addressed right at the beginning of the holiness code that Moses gives to his ancient people, God's ancient people. Paul adds these words 
of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. We know that Roman and Greek culture was very um, open on sexual matters, very progressive to use the common phrase today. But this was the one thing that even the Romans and the Greeks condemned because it brought shame and humiliation to the father of the home. Now notice, it, he says here, a man has his father's wife, not had. This isn't something that just happened in the past. This is something that is ongoing. And everybody in the church knew it. It's among you, he says. It was known. This wasn't hearsay. This wasn't gossip. It was the truth. But that wasn't the only problem in the Corinthian church. Because look at verse 2. And you are, you are proud. You're proud. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. They're, 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 they're arrogant. They're, they're boastful. They're, they're, they're proud of the fact that this is happening among them. Now, what were they proud of? What were they boasting about? We can, we can only deduce that it, they, were, they were proud of their tolerance of what was going on, that they were being open-minded like all the other people in the world. We're, we're broad-minded on these matters. We're still a people who are accepting and, and open-minded. We're proud that we, we continue to exercise and show love. They might have even quoted what Peter said when he wrote, love covers a multitude of sins. But in actuality, they really, really weren't operating in love at all because 1 Corinthians 13, the great passage on love, Paul says, love does not boast and love is not proud. Again, we see that, that they, they love the wisdom of the world. They love the philosophy. They love the teaching. They love that worldview. This was important to them. It was important to them that they be seen by the world as tolerant. And this completely blinded them to the nature of the sin that was going on and the fact that it would destroy the church's purity and the witness of the church. Look at, again at verse 2. Are you, and you are proud, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief, with mourning, and have put out of your fellowship the man who, who did this? Now in asking this rhetorical question then, he, he's essentially saying that the second thing we want to look at today is that disciplinary, disciplinary action was commanded. Paul is saying, saying here, you understand this is what you should have done. In other words, they already had some knowledge of what they should do from the apostle who had lived with them before. Now, it's important to keep this in mind that according to Matthew chapter 18, when, whenever a, a grievous sin is committed, that, that there are a number of steps that are taken to correct that sin. In other words, you don't jump immediately to putting someone out of the church, but you you go to your brother, you go to your sister in Christ, and you admonish them, you rebuke them, you correct them, you, you come alongside them, you try to encourage them, you urge them to turn from sin and, and to turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what making disciples is all about. A disciple is someone who comes under the discipline of Jesus Christ. And so we need to come alongside people and encourage them to follow the Lord and to put sin behind them. But what we have here is different. 
because there have already been efforts to do, to do, to do this, and, and there was no repentance on this individual's part. This person was obstinate. Paul would never command anything of this nature for someone who is repenting and sorry for their sin. So now he talks about what the church must do. And the last part of verse 2 makes it clear, put out of your fellowship the man who did this. And in verse 4, let me read verse 3 and 4, Paul gives some instructions concerning this. Even though I am not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. I've already passed judgment on the one who did did this, just as if I were present. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over, now these are strong words, hand this man over to Satan, so that the, the New International Version says sinful nature, a better way of translating that would be the body or the flesh may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord, that is on the day that Jesus Christ Return. So verse 4 makes it clear the church is to assemble. They're to gather to bring about this action. This isn't to be done in private. It's, it's, it's something that the whole church needs to be aware of. There needs to be a united action on the part of the church. He says, and in the name of our Lord Jesus. Notice twice in verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus. And then, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. He makes two references to the Lord in the name of, meaning by the authority of Jesus, and that Jesus will actually be present with the church to to verify and to vindicate the action that the church is making. One commentator writes, Jesus is there to give authority to their action as a church by making it his action. And there's a promise in this, in this verse that Jesus will give his author, authority and he will presence himself among his people when they have to assemble and they are called upon to execute church discipline of this nature according to God's word. Again, this, this, this is completely in sync with what Jesus himself said in Matthew 18 when he talked about an offending brother, and you go to that brother and you urge that brother to repent. He doesn't. You bring someone else along. You go after him again, and you urge him, and you, you, you plead with him, and if that doesn't work, you try again, and then finally you have to bring it to the whole church, and Jesus said that if two of you will agree on anything on earth, it will be done in heaven, meaning, meaning this, that, that, that there's an agreement among the people of God that, that this is the serious action that needs to be taken. And Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. He's not talking about general prayer. I know we quote this verse all the time to refer, you know, when we have a little prayer huddle of two or three people, Jesus is present. Well, that's true, but that's not what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 18. What he was getting at is that he will presence himself uniquely among his people when they are called upon to take such a serious action. And notice how serious it is, verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan. Hand this man over to Satan. These, these are strong words, and they, they magnify the seriousness of what is being said here. So it's really important for us to understand what this means. 
and to understand the gravity of it. When Paul says, hand this man over to Satan, he's essentially saying, hand this man over to the realm in which the devil works. You see, we know that the devil, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, is the God of this world. In Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. Jesus referred to him as the prince of this world. And the apostle John says that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So handing him over to Satan means you're, you're basically thrusting him back into the world, which is under the domination of the devil, the evil one. And you're doing this for a reason. You're handing him over because how can, how can a man who lives this way that is so contrary to the gospel of Christ, to the purity and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, how can this man continue to enjoy the fellowship of believers How can he continue to enjoy the protection that comes by being among the people of God? He needs to be put out into the sphere where the devil operates and away from the blessing of God where God works in the church. And that's essentially what he's saying. Now, why must the church do it? Sounds very harsh. But look at verse 5 again. Hand this man over to Satan so that... The sinful nature may be destroyed, the flesh may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What Paul is saying here is that this this kind of action was necessary for the ultimate good of the person who had offended. There's a positive outcome that is going to happen here. The flesh will be destroyed. In other words, that very thing that, that, that brings us down, the thing that leads us into sin itself might be destroyed. The disciplinary action has a way of, of, of apprehending the work of the flesh. And there are so many other verses in God's word which point this out to be true. There's only one other instance actually in, in the New Test- Testament where Paul uses this phrase, hand over to Satan, and that's found in 1 Timothy 1. And in 1 Timothy 1, he writes about two men who were, who have, who were brothers who became false teachers. And in 1 Timothy 1 verse 20, he refers to them by name. He says, I have handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander, handed them over to be taught not to blaspheme. In other words, their, their teaching was so contrary to God's word, it was heresy that they were teaching. And Paul said, the only thing to do now is to hand this false, these false teachers over, that God will teach them not to do what they are doing. In Matthew 18, Jesus says that when you go to your brother and you go through this process, it's to win your brother. It's to bring him back into the fold. And the word that he uses here is that his spirit would be saved on the day of the Lord. Let, let, me, let me try to illustrate this. Do you remember in the book of Job, the devil came to, came to God, approached the throne of God, and, and basically asked permission from God to be able to, um, to put Job under, under test. And uh, that permission was granted. And the book of Job is a hard book to read. It's a difficult book to read. But the Lord made it clear to Satan, Satan, you you can do a lot to my servant Job, he said. But there's one thing that you cannot do. You cannot take his life. 
You cannot touch his soul. And so Satan went after him, destroyed everything he had, all the things that he possessed, afflicted his body with sores, but he could not destroy the soul of Job. An example of what of what is desired in this action, which I think Paul is getting at here, would be the, the, pro, the prodigal son. Now, the prodigal son was not sent out of his home by any disciplinary action of his father. So the anal- analogy is not exact, but the desired outcome is. You remember, the father didn't want his son to go, and the father said, give me, the, you know, give, me, give me everything that belongs to me. Give me the inheritance that I'm going to receive in the end. Essentially, he was saying, I wish you were dead, Dad so that I could get my inheritance now. And so his father gave it to him. And the son left, and he lived in a wild way. The old adage, you know, wine, women, and song. And he destroyed his life. He destroyed his life. And and Jesus in the story says that the man finally came to his senses. And he desired to return to his father. And you remember the father, with open arms, welcomed him back, gave to him a ring, and put on him a robe, and, and, and had a great big party for his son. That's, that's really what the desired effect is here, that his spirit might be saved. And, and in the prodigal son, the father says, this is my son who was dead to me, but now he is alive. The reformer Calvin said, that this man was given over to contemporary condemnation, that he might have eternal salvation. Which tells us, friends, that whenever the church is called upon to take action of this nature, and oh, that it might never have to happen. But whenever the church is called upon to do so, it is never to do so in a vindictive way, but rather in a corrective way, that the purpose is ultimately the restoration of that person to faith and life and fellowship within the church. Question could be asked, was this man really a true believer? Well, Paul acted as though he were, but I think it's a valid question to ask. And did, did he really possess salvation in the first place? And I would, I would respond by, say, by saying this. Think of two people in the Bible. Think of King David and think of Judas. King David committed a grievous sin. And David and what his actions and his sin reminds us of how far away from God we can fall as true believers. Because David was a true believer. So it's possible for this to happen to a believer. But Judas Iscariot reminds us of how close we can be to Jesus and yet never have salvation in the first place. So regardless of what the spiritual state of the man was when the action was taken, the ultimate goal in the end was that his spirit might be saved on the day of, of the Lord. And friends, if you go to first or 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul gives some instructions to the Corinthian church I believe, concerning this man. And he exhorts the Corinthian church in the second letter that he writes to welcome this man back into fellowship because he has turned away from his sin. And Paul encourages the church at that point to receive him back into the fellowship. And what an incredible joy that must have been 
for that local church. So for the good of the, in, the individual, this is why it must be done. But also for the sake of the church, for the purity of God's church. Look at what he says in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast, a little leaven, works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, without leaven, the bread of sincerity and truth. What's Paul saying here? By, by using this illustration of yeast, yeast which gets put into the the flour into the dough, and it, 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 it permeates throughout all of the bread. Again, that yeast is a symbol of sin. And Paul is saying, if, if you allow the, the leaven, the yeast, to stay in the dough, the church, it's going, it's going to spread. It's going to have ultimately a negative effect. In other words, this is a clear and present danger for the church. And so he uses the illustration of of yeast or leaven, and he ties it into the Passover feast. For uh, Get rid of the old yeast, he says. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We talked about that a few weeks back, that this is what the Jews would do at the, pa- the Passover. They would, they would go through the whole house to find any yeast, any leaven that was anywhere, make sure it was swept out of the house. And then they would eat the Passover meal. And Paul's saying, yes, that's what the church needs to do. You can't allow this to infect the whole church. And again, I, I just look at, look, at the, look at verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast. As you really are. As you really are. Paul is saying you're God's new creation. That God looks upon the church Without yeast, without leaven, you've already been deemed clean. Chapter 1, verse 30 says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness. the, The church has righteousness. The church has holiness because it is the righteousness and the holiness of Christ that has been given to us. We are new creations. The old is past. The new has come. And so Paul says in verse 8, and I think he's speaking, speaking here in a figurative sense, keep the festival, not with the old yeast. Keep it. In other words, he's writing here about the joy, the joy that Christians have because we know that we have been cleansed from our sin. And so for the sake of the church, that sin will not spread in its midst, this kind of action has to sometimes be taken. Let me share with you a, a story which to this day brings me joy as I think of it. It happened when I was a missionary. We were overseas. We were serving in a, a small town, well, fairly large town, about 200, 300,000 people north of Manila. And uh, we had planted a church there, and we had a group of leaders in the church who we had not yet appointed as elders. But there was this one brother, and, and he committed a grievous sin. Now, he was repentant. When we went to him, he wept. He knew that he had done wrong. He confessed his sin. But the news of this had spread throughout the church. And um, we decided we needed to have a church meeting in which we publicly acknowledged what had happened. 
I had this brother make a confession in front of the church, which he did. And then we had prayer. And as soon as I had finished praying, I encouraged the church to embrace this brother and to love him. And <laughs> there were about 70 or 80 people there. It was a small church. And honestly, it was like, it was like at the end of a, of, of a football game when the Grey Cup has been won, or the end of a hockey game when the Stanley Cup has been won. Like everybody just came and they practically crushed this guy with their hugs and kisses. And they wept together as a church. On the way home, after the meeting, another one of our leaders was walking with two single girls. And the one girl said to the leader, she said, I didn't even know that that was a sin. I didn't know. But I'm glad I know now. I'm glad I know now because I don't want to commit that sin. That's the purifying of the church. And then she said, look at our group. We don't push things under the carpet. We bring it out and deal with it. And it had a profound impact for holiness on the life of two young teenage girls. The purifying of the church. It causes the whole church to fear the Lord. The next reason is for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Again, notice he's mentioned in verse 7. He is our Passover lamb. He's mentioned in verse 4 twice. In the name of our Lord Jesus, the power of our Lord Jesus is present. In other words, Jesus is the head of the church. This cannot be, this kind of action can't be done without some kind of a relationship to the head. We follow the instructions of the head of the church that comes through us through his apostles. Because whenever this happens, the, whenever a sin of this nature happens among the people of God, a disgrace falls upon the head of the church. And it's, it strikes me that the very reason for which Christ died, Christ our Passover lamb, was that he would save his people from their sins. Titus 2 says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. And so for the glory of Christ alone and for the purpose of his death, sometimes the church is called upon to take this kind of action. Now notice what he says in verses 9 through 12, because here he gives us some discerning associations that need to be clear for us. I've written you in my letter. Now he's talking about another letter that he had written. That letter is not existent. We, we, we know that this letter was written. He refers to this letter many times in his writings, but we don't have that letter in existence today. But in that former letter he'd written, he wrote not to associate with sexually immoral people. And look, at he, he qualifies this in verse 10. He says, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idol idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Paul's saying, avoid, avoid isolation. He's saying, don't, don't take this teaching to mean that this means that we avoid isolation from the people of the world. No, no. If that were the case, then we would, then we would have to exit out of this world. 
But verse 11, he makes it clear that we're to maintain separation in terms of, of sin and in terms of those who claim to be brothers or sisters in Christ. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater, a slanderer, and so on. With such a man do not even eat, he says. And so Paul says some very, very stern things in this, in this, in this passage. That if there's a brother in Christ who claims to be, claims that, a person who claims that he is a brother in Christ, but he's living in this way, and Paul says, no, you, you, you can't associate with that. You can't, you can't link yourself with someone who lives in this way, for you destroy the witness of the church in doing so. Now, there's so much more that could, that could be said, and time does not allow it today. Could actually do a whole series on just this topic alone. But I want to give you just uh, uh, some brief takeaways on discipline in the church because I know this passage raises many questions in our minds and the passage is, a, is certainly a passage that has great potential for misunderstanding. So let me share the following with you and I hope it will be helpful to you. First of all, let me talk about church discipline and judging. One of the common criticisms about a church taking action of this nature is that it's contrary, people say, to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, where he said, do not judge or you too will be judged. But friends, that really is a misunderstanding of what Jesus meant when he said, do not judge. He was talking about judging people before you really know the facts. He was talking about judging people in a wrong kind of way. Church discipline should never involve judging someone without the acquiring of the facts. There's a big difference between a right act of judging and a wrong act. And it is the wrong act of judge, judging that Jesus condemns. And he condemns it very much. Jesus condemns judgmental attitude, certainly toward others. But notice in chapter 5, verse 2, he basically says to them, you should judge in terms of this. And they were rebuked for not judging this man because they knew the facts, and the facts were clear. And he calls the church together to assemble so that things can be verified to avoid a wrong action of judgment and to render a proper judgment according to facts is not being judgmental. Secondly, let's talk about church discipline and love. Another objection to action of this nature is that it is unloving. And people would often, will often say, well, isn't it more loving than to, to work with a particular person who's caught in a sin and to come alongside that person and help them and encourage them and, and be, them, be there for them? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. But that's what discipline is all about because that's where discipline starts. And most discipline that happens usually ends there. Friends, do you realize that we practice discipline in this church every week? Not a week goes by where I don't have to sit down with someone and talk to them and offer correction at times? Or give to them strong biblical advice because they're heading in a wrong direction? That's discipline. And so that has to be happening constantly within the church. But if no progress is made, 
If a person is living in a known sin and no progress is made and there's no indication of any repentance or at least even a desire to change, then sometimes this is necessary action. I remember hearing a pastor say this once, it is the most unloving thing to neglect or to refuse to use the very means which may be used by the Holy Spirit to save a man on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now a word about church discipline and mourning and mourning. Look at chapter 5, verse, verse 2. Shouldn't you have been filled with grief? Some translations say, shouldn't you be mourning? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. No church can take this kind of action and be involved in this without, without mourning. This, this is the attitude that we should have. This is the emotion the church should feel. We should mourn for the one who has offended because the condition of that person is perilous. We should mourn over the offense itself. We cannot amputate an arm without feeling any pain. And when someone who we believe is joined to Christ is living in this way and and we have to take this action, then there is going to be pain. A church that does not mourn over the sin in its fellowship is on the edge of spiritual disaster. Let me say a word now about church discipline and division. Again, many people would object and say that if church discipline is exercised and it will cause division within the church... And doesn't the Scripture exhort us, as we've already been pointing out in this, in this series, that we are to avoid division? And the answer is yes. But friends, we also need to understand that preaching the Bible can cause division. My experience has been this, that if church discipline is done properly, according to the teaching of the Bible, with the involvement of the leaders of the church, doing the right thing and communicating well to the church as needed, then divisions are kept to a minimum. And in actuality, when serious action like this happens, it strengthens the unity of the church. It is more important, remember, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and His Word than it is to try to hold up some kind of artificial unity that is built upon disobedience and compromise to God's Word. The importance of unity must never become the idol of unity. Do you remember the words of Samuel the prophet, to obey is better than than sacrifice? We could paraphrase that and say, to obey is better than maintaining unity at any cost. Let me say a word now about church discipline and pride and the authority of the apostles. This passage speaks in an indirect way to the contemporary problem that I mentioned at the beginning of this message. The Corinthians were proud, very proud. They were an arrogant church. And they were so proud that they were rejecting the authority of their apostle, the apostle who had actually founded their church. Brothers, sisters, whenever a church follows its own feelings, and its own rationalizations instead of God's Word that comes to us through the apostles, that church is given over to pride, to pride. It is the worst kind of pride because it is a pride that says that we know better than God's 
authoritative word that we know better than the apostles of Jesus Christ. And finally, a word about church discipline and church membership. And you might be shocked that I'm about to say what I'm going to say. But I believe that church discipline is a very good reason as to why you should become a member of this church. (coughs) How do you view the local church? Just a place to come? (coughs) A place to attend? Music's nice, good friendships, good interaction with people. We like to hear the Bible taught. See, some of us come to the church because we have a consumer mindset about the church. We come because, you know, we just, we, we want to receive, we want to get. But remember that the church is a community. It's a community of believers that have pledged themselves to one another. Becoming a member of a local church is not a little thing. You're basically saying, yes, I'm prepared to make this my community, to belong to the people of God here. It's an understanding then that we are a family, and together as a family, we're going to grow, and we're going to be committed to each other in that process of growth, however painful that might be. The church is an army in which we we don't fight each other, but we fight alongside with each other, protecting each other, and doing whatever is necessary in the trenches at times to ensure that we are kept safe and maintain the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Being a member of a church is more than just having a vote to to vote on certain matters of the church or or to be able to serve in the church. Being a member of the church means you commit yourself to the responsibilities of the church and being a member of the church, of being accountable to one another, of living in submission to the church's leaders and the discipline of the church. And so we should look to the church and be involved in a local church and become a member of a local church because because that church wants to follow what the apostles teach. And that church wants to live out what the Bible says, even the hard parts of the Bible. And that's a reason to join a local church. Would you stand with me, please? Whenever someone becomes a member of West Highland, they fill out an information form, an application, I suppose we could call it. And there is a covenant that new members sign. It's a covenant that we all make in terms of being members of a local church. And this morning, I think, as a response to this message, before we sing our final song, I would ask you if you are prepared to recommit yourself to the covenant that we have made in the past. If you're already a member, if you're not a member, you can certainly follow along and uh, be informed by what this covenant says, or this may be your opportunity to make a commitment this morning to say, I want to become a member of West Highland Church. But I think it would be a good spiritual exercise for us today if we would reaffirm the covenant we've made in the past, if we would read it together, please. Together. I agree by the strength the Holy Spirit gives to forsake the paths of sin and to walk in the ways of holiness all the days of my life. I will strive for the advancement of this church to promote its prosperity and spirituality, 
to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spreading of the gospel throughout all nations. I will also strive to maintain family and friends, to walk carefully in this world, to be just in my dealings, faithful in my engagements, and exemplary in my conduct, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, and to be zealous in my efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. I will walk together with my brothers in Christian love and watchfulness, giving and receiving admonition with meekness and affection. I will remember my brothers in prayer to aid in sickness and distress. I will cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. Furthermore, I agree that when I leave this area, I will, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where I can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Our Father, you have heard what we've said in your presence today. We thank you for the grace of your spirit who works in our hearts. We thank you for the strength that he gives us as we've acknowledged in this covenant that we have made. I agree with the help of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his ministry in our hearts, the enabling that he gives us to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our prayer today, as we have renewed our commitment to this church today, that you will so work in our hearts to keep us from sin and make us so committed to each other that we will strive to press on, to pursue holiness in all areas so that Jesus Christ might be glorified in us and through us. In his name we pray, amen. May the love of God the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.